0: Hi there, my name is Saul and this is The Story of London, a podcast that literally tells the tale of the city from before it was founded up until the modern era. Each chapter of the story stands alone as a section of the city's amazing history, so you can just drop in and listen to any episode as it suits you, or you can just try to follow the tale from the very beginning as we go along. And if you have done that, well, we have a ways to go, but I'm honoured you've joined me so far. This podcast only exists due to listener support. And I would like to gratefully thank the subscribers who have kept me going for another week or so. If you'd like to join the small body of supporters who do so, you can over on the Buy Me A Coffee site with links available in the description of this podcast. It's been a year since I started doing The Story of London. And to celebrate this, I'm releasing a twofer, creating and uploading two special episodes back to back. The next one is about events way outside of London, and by way of compensation, this one is utterly focused on our city by the Thames. It's not quite a guidebook and indeed we are actually coming up to a chapter that will be entirely given over to a guide to London in the 12th century written by someone in the 12th century. Rather, this is an attempt to try and explain something a bit harder to grasp. It's about trying to work out how the people of the time thought, how they thought about their community, And how they thought about life, it's incredibly difficult to do, as it's all too easy to project modern worldviews onto people in the past, you see. And yet, using our modern worldviews can help, because they give us a fixed point we can navigate from, a benchmark we can measure against to see differences. So this episode, I suppose, attempts to be like one of those old-fashioned Ephemeris books, the ones that would record the course of celestial bodies in the sky, which allowed navigators have fixed points by which they could sail unfamiliar waters. The waters we seek to navigate, the mentality and the way of thinking and the way of life of the people of the 12th century, are new to us. So let's see if we can make sense of it all. Welcome to chapter 58 of the story, A London Ephemeris. I begin with a cautionary reminder. Where I have in the past tried to reconstruct life in London through the passing centuries, I've always been more influenced by surviving source documentation, and that tended to favour the drier aspects of life in pre-Norman London. Hence why I have, on the whole, talked so much about trade, taxation, legislation, coin manufacturing, and so forth. This episode, as you may have guessed, is different and it is here and now that we begin to utilize the work of social historians experts who have tried to reconstruct how people lived and thought in the 12th century the issue with this is that there are and will always remain uncertainties and we do desperately seek to film them just keep in mind that everything that follows is a best guesstimate based on the available evidence we do have and we should be fine so here we are The year is 1112. The place, London. Who are these people, physically, mentally, and emotionally? What are they like? Well, physically, we can say they're identical to us. Yes, while this sounds obvious, the most unusual thing for many of us today would be to realize that those Londoners back in the 1110s would be about the same size and build as we are today. It is a fairly common misconception that the average height and physical development of our ancestors meant they were smaller than us, but in fact, the average height of our ancestors waxed and waned over the many centuries between the past and the present. Sometimes, often, people did develop shorter than the average height in our era, but at other times, they were the same as we were. And the 11th and 12th centuries was one of those times. And so these residents of London we talk about are at least as physically healthy as we are, with sturdy limbs and surprisingly robust teeth. This wasn't to last long, however. After the year 1200, heights actually started to decline. And the archaeological evidence shows that From that time onwards, rural populations decreased, farmland had become degraded, and there were shortages in the number of crop seeds. So we're in a small window of opportunity and time here, where the humans in London were about the same height and build as many of us today. Their lives do, however, appear to be shorter than ours. Many books I've read have cited that the life expectancy of people in 1120 was about 55 or so. And from that, they go on to make statements like, when you reach your 40s, you were considered old in this era. But whenever you see statements like that, just realize they've just missed the obvious discrepancy in the calculation of how you work out life expectancy. The principal reason why life expectancy was so short at this time was due to the fact that our calculations included all the children who died. And that's the real headline of this era the staggering number of children who died from an array of ailments. The infant mortality rate amongst medieval children in the 12th century was unbelievably high. It has been suggested that 25% of all newborns may have died in their first year. Half as many, 12.5%, died between the ages of 1 and 4, and a full quarter as many, or 6%, died between the ages of 5 and 9. That's an infant mortality rate of roughly 44% before the age of 10. Now, there is some debate about the precise figure. I've read one or two experts who have said it was actually as low as 30%, while others have just gone straight to the 50% mortality rate on average. Any which way you look at it, however... That's a horrendous figure. The causes of death of the young were varied, and they're quite hard to always fathom with the passing of time. Even highly scientific analysis of the bones of children who died during this era can only give us rough results, but some patterns do become obvious. We have evidence to suggest that mothers in the 12th century, without baby formulas, would on occasion supplement the milk given to their children with cow's milk, And there does seem to be an issue with newborns and their ability to wean. Any impediment here would cause a much elevated chance of death, of course. Malnourishment during the complicated first year of child development seems to have been the deciding factor in survivability or mortality. At least one study has suggested that perhaps knowing the contraceptive effects of breastfeeding women would try to move on from weaning to try to get their babies onto a vegetable diet remarkably quickly. But crucially, malnourishment was the major factor in newborn mortality, with anemia, rickets and scurvy being identified as the principal causes of death. Beyond the first year, what killed children seemed to be a combination of misadventure and disease with a legion of deadly childhood ailments stalking and hunting the young of this time, predators which today are rendered useless via modern medicine and simple vaccination. There is no evidence that these high rates of infant death lessened parental grief. And the grief felt at such moments for the people in the 12th century, by all accounts, would be identical to the grief felt by parents today. In fact, the idea that somehow medieval parents are more stoic about their children's death than we are, or more calculating about how many kids they should have, these are byproducts of Victorian-era neurosis and have no basis in hard fact. These people, the people of 12th century London... They felt grief, as we do. And maybe they processed it differently, but it was as real and as tangible to them as it would be to any parent today. I mean, skull measurements reveal the people we're talking about had identical brain capacities as we do. There is no biological difference here. I was reading a study of how Scandinavian parents in this era cope with the loss of a child. It was fascinating. These are the ferocious Vikings. And London, don't forget, had experienced a large migration of these people and their culture into the city during the reign of the Danish kings. The traditional idea that only women cried at the death of an infant is completely undone by the many depictions of Scandinavian warrior men crying openly at the death of their daughter. While it was seemingly frowned upon elsewhere in Europe for men to display emotion like this, one cannot help but think a community with such a strong Scandinavian presence would have probably had openly grieving fathers. Our residents of London in the 12th century do, however, come across as practical and self-contained folks. They're not given to excessive agonising or self-analysis. Life was brutally hard. You coped. It hurt, emotionally. You coped. They, like us, used coping strategies. It's just the ones they used were very different from our own. And the principal way that people coped seems to be built upon a very rich and powerful Christian mythos. The lives of the saints. People identified with the personalities and quirks of the saints, treated them often the same way we treat characters in a soap opera. Saints were the living stars of people's everyday imaginations. They were the superheroes and celebrities of medieval culture. Like superheroes, they were ordinary humans who had somehow become extraordinary, using their special powers to help their supporters and to protect the vulnerable. Like celebrities, they were larger-than-life figures known through multiple media. The lives and after-lives of the saints were written as stories, told in sermons, and performed in plays. Saints were found in paintings, in murals, sculptures, in mass-produced pilgrim badges that served as mementos of a visit to a shrine. The lurid tales of the Christian martyrs, often focusing upon long, drawn-out, and rather explicit sequences of violence, were perennially popular, And that includes the exceptionally salacious legends of the virgin martyrs. These tales of passionate, rebellious teenage girls who rejected their pagan families and suitors to assert their own sexual and religious freedom to be virgins and brides of Christ, Ah, everybody loved them. These girls were always martyred in the stories and welcomed to heaven at the end of the tale often defying authority, resisting horrendous torture, and performing miracles and converting sympathetic pagans along the way. Some of the most popular and powerful saints never existed at all. Saint Christopher, the patron saint of Traveller, who supposedly carried the Christ child, was actually said to be a giant, and sometimes portrayed as a dog-haired man. It's said that a single glance of his image could offer protection for a whole day, which is why he's often painted on the walls of churches. Other saints may have been Christianized pagan spirits such as the Irish Saint Bridget, known in London as Saint Brides. And saints, therefore, played a role in the coping strategies of 12th century parents dealing with the loss of a child. There exists a series of stories about the tales of miraculous intervention and the saving of child by saintly intercession. And they're important because while we do not see volumes written in the 12th century about how parents coped emotionally with the loss of a child, we see how the parents acted around their children when they thought they were dead, or they were dead before some saint saved the day, And we can actually pick up patterns of behaviour that were obviously the accepted norm. This, by the way, is a whole fascinating subject unto itself, and I'm only offering a brief summary for something I could spend days talking about. But basically, when you read the accounts of saintly miracles, the first thing you're struck by is the reaction parents had to finding their child dead. There seems to have been this tradition of rolling the child physically to see if this will revive them, an insistence of physically touching and trusting to your own senses. And then there's the habit of waiting. Parents would wait to see if a child who appears dead could actually recover, usually praying while this happened. And it was only after several hours of the child not recovering that they'd finally move to the next stage, which was preparing the body for burial and even if a miracle did not happen and with as many as 44 percent of all children so afflicted it obviously didn't happen the idea of praying to saints seems to have been the basis of a universal coping mechanism and it wasn't just applying to grieving parents here there's a story I read when researching this chapter a great tale by the legal historian John Hudson and it's about an event that took place right in the heart of this decade and shows how powerful the belief in saintly intercession could be. Supposedly there was a man called Brixton who lived in the village of Chatteris. He was, by all accounts, a layman of modest means, but then suddenly gained notoriety in his local community by being able to lend money to his rather hard-up neighbours. But he made sure he never charged any interest, he never committed the sin of usury, and in the words of his local bishop, he was, quote, neither better than any other good man or worse than any bad one, unquote. Eventually, the story goes, Brixton decided he wanted to become a monk. However, at this moment, an official of King Henry I turned up and accused Brixton of theft. He said this guy had stolen crown money and this is why he could lend it to his neighbors and why he was hoping to become a monk. Basically, so Brixton could avoid the wrath of the secular legal system. At this accusation, the monks handed over Brixton, who was sent for trial before a local royal justice, a man called Ralph Bassett, and he ended up being sent to London, condemned and apparently placed in iron fetters and dumped in some dark prison, which could only really have been, as far as we can tell, one of the 45 parts of the gatehouses of the city of London. The tale goes that Brixton, suffering from cold and hunger and facing a rather grim future, called out incessantly to Saint Benedict, the saint under whose rule of monks he had vowed in all sincerity to live by. Five months of this, according to Brixton, finally led Saint Benedict to appear before him in a blaze of light, and the saint gently placed his saintly hand on the iron fetters at the prisoner's hands and feet, and they broke away like paper, The saint then threw away these chains. With such force, they struck a support beam nearby and caused it to crack with the velocity of it, shaking the entire structure. At this, the guards came running. They unlocked the door and they found the prisoner suddenly unbound. They sent word to Westminster Palace and Queen Matilda heard the tale and she sent Ralph Bassett to make sure there was no magic involved. Bassett interviews Brixton, becomes convinced this was a miracle, and, quote, rejoicing and weeping, unquote, brought Brixton to the Queen and the Barons, where, I imagine, St. Benedict's intervention, now believed to have actually happened, was enough of a character witness for him to go follow his dream and become a monk. We also read in 1119... Two men got into an argument that almost came to blows over who owned a church. Saint Antholin, over on Watling Street in London, was dedicated to a monkish saint called Anthelion, a French martyr supposedly killed about a thousand years ago. And the story goes that the priest of Saint Antholin's and the landlord of Saint antholin has got into a blazing argument about who should own it. And they were about to literally swing for each other. But then they were inspired by the virtue of the saint and agreed to reconcile and finally donated the building to the canons of Saint Paul's to run. We can laugh and gently mock such tales and marvel at the credulity of those who believe such things, but they, to me, illustrate a people coping with a world that doesn't always make sense and trying to find ways of coming to terms with it all, don't you think? You can laugh at medieval souls believing in saints freeing prisoners or inspiring men to put aside their differences or saving your children Right up until you realise that this is how they tried to cope with the practical terror of dying of cold in their own beds if it was cold enough. Of living in a world where you could just eat something and getting poisoned by it and just drop dead. Of being prone to complaints that today they'd send us to ER at worst. But back then, they'd kill you. When you see such things, you immediately begin to see what seems odd to us now seems more sensible. You cannot help but notice, by the way, when you read the stories of miracles, that they always took place after normal lay people prayed for intercession, never when any priest did. Any supernatural influence in these stories is found not via the guardians of the faith, but these stories presented it in a way to give the poor and normal souls of this world, agency. And we can also maybe work out a potential explanation as to why people in this time venerated saints so much and asked the saints for intercession as opposed to God himself. This was an era of a powerful priest class. Men who alone could read and speak Latin, who read the Bible, who knew the sacred scripture. You can't help but feel that to the average lay parishioner of London, Asking intercession from God himself is an act filled with pride and hubris. Who are we to ask God to save us? Far easier, perhaps, far more humble, would be to ask some saint for intercession, even if that saint is someone as high profile as Mary, the mother of Christ. Seeing it that way, now the cult of saints makes more sense, and the coping strategy appears to be revealed a little better to us. There have been long traditions of looking down upon the residents of the 12th century by later traditions, probably driven by the lack of literacy in the population. Many books I read on this era commented upon the low rate of people who had the ability to read and write in this age. But when they do, they also kind of allow later neurosis influence how we view the past, because in the 12th century... Reading a text and writing a text were two very separate skills. The most common way to compose books in this era was the fine art of speaking. Composition was the art of dictating to a writer who did the fiddly part for you. The core intellectual talent of academics was primarily reading and dictating writing. That was a totally different, not intellectual, more mechanical, practical skill. Why? Well, speaking practically, penmanship was a seasonal occupation, almost impossible to do in the cold winter, because this meant the ink took too long to dry. Actual writers who thought up and then wrote down their own words, men like Odoric Vitalis, openly complained that the cold damaged their fingers and prevented ink from setting and they would have to wait for months at a time, usually due to a spring, to carry on writing. When scribes and copyists working in monasteries sent for coals, it wasn't always to warm themselves, but more often than not was used to warm their work. And then consider the specialist tools you needed to actually write a document in the early 1100s. For the crucial act of ruling the lines, so the writing looked straight, you'd need a stylus, a charcoal stick, a ruler, a plumb line, and an owl for the act of pricking tiny holes in the parchment to mark the beginning of every line. You would also need a sharp knife or a razor. That's for scraping the parchment to make it usable. And remember, you had to scrape the parchment because it isn't paper, it's sheepskin. Or if money was no object and you were damn good at the job, you could use calfskin or vellum. You'd need a pumice for cleaning and smoothing the skin after you've scraped it, and then you'd need a boar's tooth, or a goat's tooth could be used to polish the surface, so the ink on your quill wouldn't splatter. And all of this was before you wrote a single thing down. Once you were ready to write, then you'd need your quill pens, a pen knife, ink, and inkhorns. Quills were mostly made from goose feathers, but raven feathers could also be used. The penknife you'd use to cut the tip to make a nib, but you still had to hold it carefully in order not to blot or scratch the parchment. Sure, you needed to be able to read in order to be able to write, but the impression we get, scribes were kind of the engineers of literacy, with the flashy academic types dictating away to great intellectual glory on the whole. This Ephemius is supposed to try and help us understand how people thought back then. But there are times I feel our modern sensibilities utterly prevent that. Consider slavery. We today find the idea of owning people objectionable. But as I've mentioned many times previous to this, England was a slaving state. And even now, in the years after 1115, slaves still existed. How could Christians reconcile it, especially without the later baggage of slavery being carried out on people from foreign countries? I mean, slaves in the 12th century looked identical to slave owners in the 12th century. Well, the thing is, people knew slavery was kind of wrong. Last chapter, I mentioned the Synod of Westminster in 1102, the one that had triggered the protests of the barefoot priests in London. That synod was also noticeable for the proclamations that came from it that condemned slavery, famously saying, quote, let no one dare hereafter to engage in the infamous business prevalent in England of selling men like animals, unquote. Now, William the Conqueror had banned the selling of slaves overseas, which, as we pointed out in the previous chapter, had ended London-based merchants arriving in Lombardy to sell on their neighbours. But the London slave traders had adapted. That condemnation, I quoted, was inspired by English slave traders selling English people to Irish buyers who were ready customers. And yet, If you look at the small print, you see continuing ambiguity towards slavery, even from that synod. It did not, for example, forbid the English church from keeping slaves. And more than that, all the condemnation in the world didn't actually end the buying and selling of slaves. It was a church council. There was no legal authority behind it. Slavery, you see, was used as a punishment for a range of crimes in this era, from certain types of theft all the way to incest. Oh, and by the way, in an actual proven case of incest, the man would become a slave of the king and the woman a slave of the local bishop. It's worth considering that the idea that everyone should be executed for every crime possible is a later invention, and it only really comes up when crime goes out of control. And prisons could only really be used when there were stone buildings with iron bars, and that meant slavery was a good possible alternative punishment. And as we saw during this era, in times of famine and food shortage, it was a way people could seek out safety when all hope was left, offering the chance for somebody to own them in the hope of gaining food. In truth, slowly, by the year 1200, slavery in England did die out. But some historians will counter that while overt slavery did cease, elements of it remained in English culture to arise in a group of people known as serfs and villeins and bondsmen. The debate about this is passionate and I do not have time nor the skill to do it justice but suffice to say there are aspects of London society in this era that will remain alien to us I feel. So what else can we navigate by? What else seems similar to our sensibilities that we can see patterns of behaviour in the 1110s? Well, we're aware that in this growing city, Londoners like to spend their leisure time on a range of activities. This, again, we sometimes find hard to conceptualise. Our image of life in the early medieval period supposedly is one of drudgery and endless work. Yet here we are and see people's lives filling their time with many activities. Young men enjoyed bouts of quails, a game where a number of pins were set up in a line and players had to knock them down with a ball and stick. All ages of men could engage in hunting. Young boys could trap rabbits, hares and fowl with gin snares and nets while their fathers could stalk boar armed with crossbows just outside the city walls. And to the north of the city lay Smithfield, a Thriving Livestock Market from a Monday to a Thursday and which became the city's main horse market on a Friday. Smithfield was known for mock fights and battles young men would engage in during Lent and it was here on a Midsummer's Eve where boys would wrestle one another and their sisters sang and danced until long after midnight. London is like to unwind with riding and archery and also chess, only it was a version of chess we probably wouldn't automatically recognise. Chess, we know, was a game played by Muslims who introduced it to Spain and southern France and sometime over the next few years it had moved north. And some things were the same, the game ended when the king was in checkmate, but some things were very different. The queen back then was a very weak piece, arguably the weakest on the board, and The all-powerful queen we recognise from chess today didn't arrive until the 15th century. Chess games in the 12th century were even slower than today's games and even more drawn out, which makes them a good way to pass the time, I suppose. There were no decks of cards to play with, we're about 200 years before they come along, but we do have evidence of backgammon being paid and noughts and crosses, or tic-tac-toe. These people also like to tell each other riddles, and here is where we discover something that feels familiar to us today, we get an insight into their sense of humour. There is a book of riddles within this era found over in Exeter. Now, the rhymes within it were old, over a century old at this time, but I love them because, for me, they are the voice of the sense of humour of the people of this time. And some of them are... Well, I'll let you decide. Here's one. What am I? Quote, I am a strange creature, for I satisfy women. I grow very tall, erect in a bed. I am hairy underneath. From time to time, a beautiful girl, or brave daughter of some fellow, dares to hold me, grips my reddish skin, robs me of my head, and puts me in her pantry. At once that girl with plaited hair, who's confined me, remembers our meeting, and her eyes moisten. Unquote. The answer is, of course, an onion. And here we see the smutty innuendo of the Victorian music hall or Shakespearean fuel had a much earlier origin, that perhaps this type of humour is as old as the streets of London themselves. Not that the streets of London should be taken lightly in this era. London was, surprisingly enough, booming, and at some point, the next few decades would reach a population of about 40,000 or so. It was teeming and bustling and breaking out at the seams somewhat. Infrastructure was almost non-existent, and whatever was in place was soon overwhelmed. Hygiene was an issue. The problem started with water. Water for cooking and washing came from a private well, if you were rich enough to own one, or could afford the fee to use someone else's private well. Or if that wasn't an option, water would be purchased from one of the Teeming City's many water carriers, who scooped up water in large leather pouches from the Thames and would sell the contents door to door. Of course, the water from the river wasn't really safe to drink due to the water source and the communal city toilet being one and the same thing. It's not uncommon to find residents with dicky tummies easily set off gastric complaints caused by continual experience of drinking this stuff. Londoners in the 12th century, however, were pragmatists. If the water wasn't safe to drink, don't drink the water. There were a range of alternatives. Whey, the watery, dry part of milk left behind when making cheese, was one. Mead, the low alcoholic mix of water and fermented honey, was another, but it was alcoholic drinks that replaced water on the whole, traditionally weak beers, and experts from the Museum of London supposedly said that they have evidence to suggest that 12th century Londoners drank ale by the gallon, starting at breakfast. John Clark, curator of the medieval London Gallery, said, quote, Most people, including children, drank ale made from malted barley without hops. They even drank ale for breakfast and got through a gallon or four and a half litres a day each. At the price of a penny per gallon, only the poorest had to make do with water, unquote. So that was the start of the hygiene issues. But the most obvious one? 12th century London smelt of shit. Lots of shit. All the shit. Human shit, sure, but also horse shit, sheep shit, pig shit, chicken shit, dog shit. (laughs) We've got archaeologists who spend their time bravely specialising in the contents of latrine pits from this era. And they have discovered much from that shit. For example, the most common toilet paper of this era moss. What else have they discovered? Well, believe it or not, dog poos have not really changed in size and consistency in the last 1,000 years. However, they've also discovered that very few human stools have survived from this era. Our Londoners had considerably looser bowel movements than we do. It's to be expected they had probably reoccurring gut infections and a high vegetable diet. But we also know from the sheer number of apple pips, plum and cherry stones found in latrine pits, Londoners probably never let anything go to waste. The smell of the shit was joined by the sounds of flies who swarmed around the streets and the shit and the offal from dead animals and butchers, and the whole place was grimly unsanitary. Parasites found Londoners great hosts, from the inoffensive shipworm to the more sinister moorworm who could grow to almost a foot long and would like to migrate around the human body. The more worm could and did emerge unexpectedly from any orifice. Could You could indeed experience the trauma of having one leave while you were using the toilet. But there are cases of these things emerging from tear ducts unexpectedly. Fleas were hated as they bit and the bites hurt. And there are various remedies for fleas, from locking flea-infested clothing into an airtight container for a while, right up to the idea of laying flea-infested clothing onto lamb skin. When the fleas jumped off, they would show up as black on the white surface and you could squish them. Grooming is way more important than grim living in a world so filled with parasites. Soap was generally made from ashes from the fire of the house, and cleaning your teeth usually involved using green hazel shoots before polishing your gnashes with a woolen cloth. Is it any wonder that diseases like leprosy were common enough in England at this time? So much so that in 1117, Queen Matilda opened London's first leprosy hospital. It was important that the sufferers of the disease be kept from the uninfected residents of the city, but placed close enough nearby that they could beg for the day-to-day living they needed. The result was the Hospital of St. Giles in the Fields. So named because it was placed in those fields away from London and Westminster, but near to a road to London, so travellers to London would pass small groups of lepers seeking alms. The hospital buildings were actually located in what is today Charing Cross Road, St. Giles Half Street and Shaftesbury Avenue, and were set up for 14 lepers. And around 1117, Queen Matilda also paid for the building of a new public bathhouse in London. London was, by today's standards, very grim indeed, but... They were aware of it. London was changing, however, growing, and with it came new communities to live within its streets. Last centuries, we had seen Danes and Scandinavians arrive, apparently in large numbers, mostly towards Lambeth and the south of the city, and they seemed to have integrated and married into London society. But here in the years leading up to 1120, we begin to see others move in. Norman and French residents came to London in this era, never in the form of a large community, but enough to be noticeable. And I'm going to focus on one such family here and now, moving into one of the richer limestone and wooden houses found on the corner of Cheapside and Ironmonger's Road. It's a draper and his family. They are migrants who'd arrived in London about a decade earlier and had set up shop here. The head of this migrant household was a man called Gilbert Beckett, with his wife, who was unsurprisingly called Matilda. They had left Rouen, the capital of Normandy, around 1100, sailing over to capitalise on the prevailing desire to replace native merchants with Norman ones. It is highly likely that the surname Beckett was derived from the Abbey of Beck. These were not the only migrants in the region. Nearby to Cheapside was a close-knit community of Jewish residents, also newly arrived in the last few decades. But unlike the Jewish community, the Norman community seemed to have integrated more easily. And this, like the integration of the Scandinavian community during the era of the Knutsen dynasty of kings, requires a tentative explanation. You see, Londoners were not entirely comfortable with foreigners coming into their city, in fact, we're going to see time and again over the years to come, So how come the Scandinavians and the Normans were able to assimilate more easily into London's social network? I think the most bare-bones explanation is obvious. At the time those communities arrived in London, they were manifestations of the ruling dynasty. The Danes arrived in London when the King of England were Danes or Half Danes, and the Normans arrived when the Kings of England were obviously Norman. Having issues with them was shorthand for having issues with the regime, and so the locals accepted them. But anyone beyond that, and didn't have that kind of backing, ah, well, it would never be anywhere as good. So while London was never going to become a Rouen by the Thames, it was also never going to experience culture shock at the arrival of these Normans. That fairly rich Norman Draper's family, for example, they probably spoke French to one another in their home, but English to their servants and neighbours, and they created a bilingual household, something that, you could be said, was happening across the city. The Becketts, along with many other Norman migrants in the city, were proud to swiftly assimilate into their local community. London was a busy and varied place. Neighbourhoods in the city had been traditionally described as soaks, but now the soaks were fermenting and evolving into the wards, usually a block of streets and between them one or three parish churches within them. The slow development of the wards had also led to the natural evolution of a new type of city official, the alderman. These basic civil leaders, at heart a ward organiser, had begun playing crucial roles in dealing with the practicalities of life in this crowded city. For example, where should you jump your rubbish? Where should you put the stables? Who owned that stray pig? When we look at the names of those earliest aldermen, we begin to see they reflected the diverse and complex nature of this surprisingly multicultural city. Some aldermen differentiated themselves by their jobs, as well as how they spell their names. So we can see Alderman Godwin as baker, who was obviously a baker, who was different from Godwin Ladjuba, who was a moneyer, or Godwin Turk, who was a fishmonger, or Godwin Worsted, who was a mercer, or even Godwin Sal, who was a hatter. And each of these five men spelled their name Godwin differently, revealing Danish or Saxon or even French inflections, and actually reveal as much about their possible heritage as much as their jobs. However, some aldermen's surnames sounded like nicknames they just carried on using. Edwin Atter's name meant Edwin of the Sharp Tongue. Robert Badding implies a rather effeminate man. Hugh Flegg was Wide Awake. Johannes Flock had woody hair, John Goodale sold good ale, and Thomas Gottsall was honest. These men represented a new breed of Londoner. Hard-working, money-earning, inward-looking men of faith. With its fundamental beliefs in meritocratic values, as well as the pride of independence of being a self-governing community, London then does seem to be more than happy for anybody to join in the running of the city provided they adhered to the principles shared by those already here. The brief charter given by William the Conqueror had agreed to uphold the rights of the city as established previously, but at this time we know that London as a place had to provide the regime of Henry I with a large tax obligation, which, as events in future chapters will reveal, was perhaps too much for them to cover. So, what am I trying to say here? Well, here we see a people residents of London in this decade, trying to come to terms with a volatile world by clinging to certain coping behaviours. A faith in God and belief in the saints to give you personal agency in the face of a uncaring world. A belief in the systems that had helped form your city and the insistence that all newcomers conform to your way of thinking. A need to find ways to decompress, relax and laugh. By these things, you could cope with the endemic political instability and the pressures of living in the largest community of England and even how you can cope with sudden grief and calamity. And I really have to emphasise their sense of humour, as bawdy as it it was, as one of the ways London has coped. And there's a lovely incident that took place in 1114 that, for me, really sums up London's sense of humour. There was a drought this year, which some records suggested was actually one of the driest years on record. And it culminated in a unique moment that took place around the middle of October that year. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, quote, "...there was an ebb tide which was everywhere lower than any man remembered before." So people went riding and walking across the Thames to the east of London Bridge, unquote. The image of the Thames being so low that you could walk across it, it's staggering, but I'm fairly sure it didn't run dry so much as just be seriously reduced to a combination of drought and tide. But then you get the impression that the residents of London took one of that and went, well, don't see that every day. I wonder if somebody could walk across it. Sod it, hold my ale. And with that, I come to the end of this Ephemeris. Did it succeed in helping you know how Londoners thought back then? I don't know. I hope it did. But if I failed in this task, then I hope it was entertaining at least. I will end this little insight into London and life on the streets of London with one final fragment, a precursor of things to come. In 1118, Gilbert and Matilda Beckett were to celebrate the birth of a son, a boy called Thomas. He was a sickly baby, we think. We get the clue from the fact that Gilbert had him christened within hours of his delivery, not days. But he survived, although he would always have a dodgy and very easily upset tummy for the rest of his life. Young Thomas was to grow up in that London. This city made him. Seriously, he liked to refer to himself as Thomas of London for most of his adult life. He was a child of these streets, the noisy and busy corner of Cheapside and Ironmonger's Row in the 1120s. And I'm going to leave the chapter on his birth because Thomas Beckett was to become a very important Londoner indeed. There is much, much more I could have added, and I'll be adding details like this to the main story as we go along. As I said, this is one of two special episodes about this decade, and coming out within the next 24 hours, a second episode to celebrate our first year anniversary. Yay! And this one will be about the most important event of this century, and one that's going to change the story of London forever. So, coming very soon, the ghost of the white ship. Alright, thank you so much for listening. Bye.